here this morning as you get settled back into your seats. We are headed to John chapter 14, John 14. You might be surprised by that because as you know, most of you, we are in the middle of a verse by verse, chapter by chapter study through the book of Romans. But however, it is Mother's Day and Romans chapter 11 has some harsh realities about the consequences of unbelief. And it's not really, um, really that kind of fitting for a happy, sweet Mother's Day. Uh, and so no worries. Guess what? The harsh realities of rejecting Christ, they'll still be there on Sunday. <laughs> and we'll make our way to Romans chapter 11 next week. Right now, it's John 14. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Now, Father God, we look to you for this peace that passes understanding to guard our hearts and minds. We live, we live in such a troubled world. We have trials on the inside, trials on the outside, and just, Lord, everything in between. We pray that you would show us a new understanding of how to walk in what you give us, your peace, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin with a little joke. It's a little riddle, a one-liner. What lies at the bottom of the ocean and twitches? A nervous wreck. <laughs> Come on, uh, that's, that's good. Come on. Uh, no, one, <clears throat> no one wants to be one of those, right? But for many in the modern world, especially in the Western world, in the church and outside of the church, it's a sad sad reality. Peace is often lacking. People are looking all over for it, but it's so elusive and it needn't be so. A lot, just under half of Americans report greater stress levels now today than five years ago. Less peace of mind than they once had. And part of the reasons for this, uh, even secular writers say that uh, there's a reason and a problem uh, that's creating the decline in mental health. And that is the modern technology and information technology, social media platforms, uh, really bring an overload of stimulus. So we weren't designed to know what everybody's doing every single day, all day long. And not only were we not designed for that, but the incoming news. And so the, the one writer put it this way, said, because of the nonstop bombardment of information, that it, quote, robs us of the repose or the rest that the human psyche needs in order to order, to uh, process, and to reflect upon for a sense of personal uh, peace and well-being. And so be that as it may, I'm sure, yes, I'm sure that it has exacerbated the problem that humans have with anxiety, but, you know, no matter what century you were born in, the human heart, the human heart is so pr 
prone to being afraid and being insecure and wondering what if this and what if that. And so I was reading about this and uh, the average person's anxiety is focused on, and I have a chart here for you, 40% on things that will never happen. 30% of our worrying is about things about the past that can't be changed anyway. 12% about the criticism by others that's unfounded, just kind of mean things people say that aren't really helpful. Uh, 10% of health, uh, real or imagined, imagined is this, you know, that you have, you know, maybe a, a puffy left hand, right? So you Google puffy left hand, and you know what? You have two weeks to live, really. <laughs> Honestly, people do that, you know, uh, not in this church, but in other churches, I think. So. 8% of what's going on in there is really about real adversity or problems or issues that we deal with. And so really what I took away from this is, is really that most of our preoccupations, our worries are unnecessary. Like Michael de Montaigne, he was a French philosopher back in the Renaissance. He said, my life has been full of terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. <laughs> Now, Jesus will take it a, a step further. He won't say most of your worries are unnecessary. He's saying because you have a father in heaven, none of your worries are necessary. He just said, Jesus says in Matthew 6, you know about your worries? He goes, it's a ginormous waste of time. He said, it doesn't help you in any way. So why bother? Why not just seek God and being right with him, live for God and all the stuff you need because you have a father will fall into place. So give worry a break. And so there's a remedy for our restless hearts that are prone to wander into worry. And it's something Jesus addressed head on in John 14. And here it is in one verse and three sentences. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. We'll leave that up there for now because this is our passage for reflection this Mother's Day. It's well-known, often memorized, and well-loved verses. Some of you, most of you maybe have committed it to memory. And there's a good reason for that because we are in desperate need of that security because we have fears and we have our problems and uh, these words are so precious to us. So really quite the fringe benefit, Jesus is saying, that not only does salvation reconcile you to God, forgive all your sins and give you a place in heaven and a place out of hell. The, one of the fringe benefits, and there's thousands of these, he says the quality of your life will here and now will be enhanced. You don't have to run around chasing the things you need and just base everything on I want the news coming in and all of your situation, your circumstances. You can have this peace, this underlining security and sense of well-being because you know your soul is in the hands of the living God. And so that's pretty good. Now, Jesus, knowing that uh, full of well how crazy life is, and especially there at the table, 
because this is the Last Supper, the context for these beautiful words, he understands what's out there. Wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and crime and corruption and self-centered mean people and sinning and evil and the, the human soul, the human life is so vulnerable to injury, victimization, disease, and despair. I love what, um, what's her name? Anna Green Gables. Uh, Anne is throwing a fit. We watched this a thousand times with Jordan growing up. And uh, Anne is throwing a fit. And Marilla says, uh, she says, what's your problem now? And she goes, oh, I'm in the depths of despair. <laughs> and she rebukes her. And says, listen up, child. You are not in the depths of despair because to despair is to turn your back on God. Oh, yeah, see, we get, you know, down and we grieve and we hurt and we get confused, but we don't turn our backs on God. And he never turns his back on us, amen. So, so on the night before he leaves now, he says, you know, I'm leaving. Shalom. And he's going to explain that piece. I'm giving you more than a uh, salutation, as the Jews would say, shalom when they're leaving. But he's 12 hours from the cross. And so he is saying truly shalom. And then he's going to do a play with this and say, I'm actually leaving with a blessing of shalom. And, and, and he talks about how it's ours. It's our inheritance. And it's his gift to us because he knows we live in a train wreck. Uh, life is so fragile. And everybody's got angst of one kind or another. And there's, there's probably a thousand cares represented in this congregation right now. And he's saying, let me leave you with something, folks. He's going to carry you through all of those difficulties very much undisturbed and untroubled in your heart of hearts. And so let's talk more about that. Now, these three sentences are going to make three great points, all right? So regarding the remedy to chaos and turmoil inside your heart, the remedy, number one, will be what it is. It's my peace. It's, listen, who is Christ? Christ is God. So number one, it's going to say, it's my peace, the peace of God. Number two, he's going to say, where you'll never find it. You'll never find it in this life, in this world, on this planet. It comes from heaven. If you're looking for it, if you want it, you can have it but you better look for it in the right place. And then thirdly, he's going to say what you have to do to make it yours because God will do his part. And when it comes to having peace that passes understanding and keeping your heart undisturbed and undeterred, you have a very big part to play. He says, cooperate with me, work with me, people. All right, those are the three points. Your three sentences staring at you. Let's take them one at a time. Number one, here's what my peace is. Here's the remedy, the peace of God. Let's talk about this. So this is what's gonna anchor a human heart and mind and the well-being of God himself because it's his peace. So my first takeaway is he's saying, Peace I leave with you. Of course, I've already told you he's leaving. He's going to 
be 12 hours on the way to the cross where he will be crucified, dead, and buried. He will rise, but he is leaving. He is going to die on the behalf of our uh, sins. And so here in at this table, my first takeaway is, is that God's peace coexists with our problems. Uh, don't get the wrong idea when you think of God's going to give me peace, which means everything's going to clear up and there's going to be no threat to my peace. No, God's peace is defined by coexisting with the very turmoil that comes to you that's very real, very intense. You have to deal with it. But he says, I've got a countermeasure that will take that and uh, mitigate and soften the um, toxic effect it has on our happiness and on our sense of well-being. And so really, I mean, think of it this way. Two artists were asked to paint a picture of perfect peace. So the first one paints this beautiful lake with this little boy carefree, you know, with a smile on his face and he's relaxing, his hands behind his head. He just kind of looks like he's ready to take a nap and he's adrift on the, on, on the lake. But it's got that surreal stillness to it. You can almost hear the birds chirping and just want to be there because it's so peaceful. The second artist draws this raging waterfall. The, 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 the wind is sweeping the, the spray all over the place, you can almost, I mean, really, you can feel the pounding and the raging and the tumultuous waters just uh, falling uh, wave after wave. And a branch overhanging those roaring waters is a, a bird's nest with a mama bird sitting on her eggs perfectly at peace. And this is biblical peace, the peace that Christ gives to us, demands a challenge to it. So the challenge comes in, but the peace is the conqueror, the knowledge that all is well, despite the nearness of those raging waters. And so when you have God's peace, it doesn't mean you don't have problems. It means you have a remedy. You have a, you, you, you will, not, not that you don't have troubles, but that you don't have the consequences trouble bring to a soul that's unanchored, the knowledge of the gospel and the goodness of God. So let's dive in. As I've been saying, what is this shalom peace? And so I've got here this for you, the Hebrew and the Greek. So, this is the word that Jesus used at the table was shalom. The word that gets translated for it and takes it a step further is where we get the lady's name Irene. It's Irene in Greek, all right? So let's talk about shalom. Shalom comes from a word that has nuance this way. If the flock was full and one was missing, you didn't have shalom. Shalom was complete, whole not lacking anything, restorative in its nature. And so if a wall had all its stones together and the wall was perfect without gap, without a breach in it, with no cracks, nothing, just a complete wall, it was the shalom of the wall, you see. If you were working on a puzzle, and they even had puzzles back then, and, and, and you're missing a piece, and you get that last piece and you put the last piece in the puzzle and you sit back. The puzzle now has shalom. It's complete. It's not lacking. And the same way, 
with life. So God uses the word shalom to say life has a lot of moving parts in order for you to feel that everything's okay. You need all of those pieces to kind of be aligned, complete, whole, nothing lacking for your happiness, for your sense of security. That is why Jewish people would greet. You never know when a Jew is saying hello or goodbye because it's the same word, shalom. It's the blessing of may you have everything you need. May you prosper on every level. May there be no threats, no gaps in the hole, no missing flock member, none of that. That's the wish. Now, Jesus is saying, I'm time to go. Shalom. That's what he said. He's leaving. So he's a Jew. And he says to Jews, shalom. I'm off. But I'm leaving you this complete whole sense. But here's where Irene comes in the Greek and why the Holy Spirit would want us to see shalom through the eyes of Irene is the permanence the establishment of what Christ went to do. He went to give the basis for the blessing of peace. And so he went to that cross. He took on every threat to your soul, the wrath of God, death itself, guilt, the grave, separation from loved ones, the fear of death hanging over every human heart and the wrath of God to follow in payment for the sins committed. And because he died and rose again and offered that reconciliation to people, that is the basis for why when all hell is breaking loose, which it was at the table, he can want to talk about peace. He wants to talk about peace when Judas is betraying him. The devil enters Judas at the table. The soldiers are getting ready. The Sanhedrin is getting ready for court. Everything's gonna happen. The disciples are gonna flee. Peter's gonna deny him. Sweat drops of blood are coming. He knows all of this and he says, hey, I wanna talk about peace and I'm gonna leave it here with you. I'm about to go through a lot, but I'm gonna share the peace that undergirds me through my storm and knowing everything that I know, he goes to that cross with perfect peace. He lays down on it and says, Father, forgive them in a sweet, uh, surrendered will to the Father. This is what he's talking about. And the peace of Christ that passes all understanding that will guard our hearts and minds is not some wishful thinking on somebody saying, shalom to you, knock on wood, I hope everything's complete and wonderful for you. It's the reality that everything is complete and wonderful for you and nothing can separate you from the love of God. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things to come, nor things in the past, nor future things. Death, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, he says in all of these things, Listen, name the problem, Romans 8 says. You don't have any problems because God is for you. And in your soul of souls, where it counts, where it's eternal, there's no harm coming to those who has the most high God as they're covering you live and breathe and exist under the shadow of the Almighty. And more than that, he indwells you himself He's made his home 
in your heart. He's wedded your soul to the living, eternal God. Therefore, he says, when I give peace, there's nothing that can disturb that peace because your soul is anchored in Christ. And the things that are going crazy in your life, even those things, will work out for your good. So it's more than, well, be thinking of you, crossing my fingers for you, knock on wood, kind of blessing shalom to you all. May you prosper and may the force be with you. (laughs) I can't do it the way Spock does it, so I need some help there. Yeah, no, it's that you have a reason. You have a reason. You have solid ground. Yes, life can get crazy, but the peace of Christ, it's like I grew up in uh, Long Island, And when I was 10, we moved to Boston. But right about when I was 10 there in Long Island, we lived right next to the Long Island Sound. And in our backyard down a trail was the marsh and the water, the inlet, the ocean was there. And I went out there with my buddies and we used to kind of doggy paddle. We couldn't swim yet. And I would always touch the bottom and feel safe. And I was always out there feeling safe. And then one time a wave came in and out and out I drifted and I'm doing the doggy paddle and I'm trying to find the bottom and there's no bottom. I remember to this day, the scaredest I ever was as a kid, I couldn't find the bottom. The peace of Christ gives us a bottom. And yeah, We're in the water. Yeah, we're splashing around. Yes, you get the diagnosis. Yes, you get uh, some kind of bill, you know, surprise. Yes, somebody goes crazy in your life and starts to act in hurtful ways. Yes, it's not a numb, a vacuum kind of disengaged thing that we just walk around. I've got the peace of Christ, you know. (laughs) No, 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 no. You're going to cry with the peace of Christ. You're going to mourn. You're going to ask some questions. But you've got a bottom. You don't despair. You're perplexed, but we don't despair. We're knocked down, but we're not abandoned. You see, this is the peace of God that he wants. And, And what I love about it that some people forget is that he's saying, and you can go back to our sentence there, it's my peace. Look at that. It's my peace. Who's talking? God. He's fullness of God in human body. Colossians 2.9, just flat out. So he's saying, God's peace. I give to you my peace. The peace I enjoy is God. Okay, stop and think about what we're talking about here. What does God's heart look like when it comes to peace? Oh, he doesn't know any fear. He has no threats. He has no rival. He has no fear of running out of resources. So when he says, my peace, the peace that I've always had, the peace that I'll always have, the quiet repose of the most high God. He says, I'll give my peace to you. That ought to be enough for any doctor's call. That ought to be enough for a lawyer's call, a police stop, you know, whatever. I'm just thinking, just stopping and thinking of what causes anxiety and police stop came to mind. <laughs> whatever it is. It's not that we turn off our minds. It's that we turn on our faith and the truth of the reality of the safety of our souls. I really don't think when the chariots were coming down on God's people that the Lord was like, 
Pharaoh's coming back again. What? You know, and then they're backed up against the wall. Where are they going to go? There's no roads. There's just water there. What are we going to do? Oh, no. Michael, uh, Gabriel, my archangels, I need some counsel. I'm panicking. Please. No. No, no, no. No. When the widow's running out of flour and oil. You know, when Dan, Daniel's being touched, you know what, buddy? You're going to the lions. Jesus had blood pressure of 120 over 80 the whole time from the beginning. You didn't like that one so much, did you? And I don't have a third service to try it out on. <laughs> God never gets stressed. And he says, that ability... I'm going to give to you. That's his piece. The second question, now that we understand what he's talking about when he's going to give us shalom, is where you're not going to find it. And why does he do that? I don't give to you as the world gives. In Greek, it's a little bit easier to understand. He's saying, my offer and the world's offer, two different things. You're not going to find what I'm talking about in the world. What does he mean by the world? He means, I've got a good definition here, the fallen system of the Christ-rejecting world. Um, its values, its mindset, its human understanding of how to pursue life and happiness without God. That's the world. And he says, that system out there is very different from mine. And if you go after what they offer, they say, hey, this is how you get that last puzzle piece in, you know, when you got all your stuff, when you buy your house, when you get your degree, when you get married with perfect love, you know, whatever it is, pleasure, right? They have a way. In fact, they say, they say, you know, find yourself what makes you happy. Then you'll have that peace. You'll be like, ah, satisfaction. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, don't find yourself, please. That's the last thing you want. He says, what you want to do is find me lose yourself, find me, have a relationship with me, and then you will truly find who you genuinely are. That's what he says. And then so the world has so many things like that, right? You know, uh, look out for number one. Oh, no, Jesus says, no, that won't bring you peace. You have to look out for my interests first and then other people second and look out for number one, number three. That's what will bring you peace. But the world has something else. You know, the, you know, love your friends and hate your enemies. And he says, that won't give you peace. Oh, no, somebody slap you, you slap them back, but slap them harder. You know, no, he says, that won't bring you peace to my peace, not the world's ways up doing things, do it my way. And then you'll have peace, you know? The world has its system. You know, some books, self-help books. Awaken the giant within. How? No. I don't want any giant awakening in me. Uh, my wife has enough problems with this giant right here. Uh, <laughs> the seven habits of highly effective people or your best self be you only better. There's thousands of these books. There's thousands of what the world gives. Jesus says this. Some of them are well-intentioned. Some of them are good. When they're good, they kind of mimic 
biblical truths, right? And, and so he's just saying, do not seek what for your soul, for your heart, for eternal things, what the world in all its temporariness and superficiality can never provide you. Don't store up your treasures on earth. This is the meaning of this. He's saying, live for God, store up treasures in heaven. Then he says, your, where your treasure is, there will your heart be, safe and secure from any kind of alarm. But the world says, it's all here and now. You better, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And so we have needs. Where are you going to get this at? You know, you have a need to be loved in a way that your husband and your wife can never meet. You must let them off the hook because you were designed by God with a hole in your heart for love that only the one who made that soul can fulfill perfectly. And what we end up doing is looking for love from the spouse to fill where God is meant. And so instead of turning to God in a relationship with God declining, and we're pressing for more and more and more through the kids or through the job or through the pursuits or through the wife or through the husband, and he's saying, it's me. That's where you'll find peace. That's where it is. You need to belong. You have a need to feel safe. You have a need for hope. You have a need for worth. You have a need for this shalom, the sense of well-being. And so Jesus says, I'm the bread of heaven. If you eat of me, you will never be hungry. He's saying, I am the source of your longings. You long because I made you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. You were knit together for the purpose of having relationship and love and purpose in me. So I'm like the bread of heaven. You eat it and that longing, you'll be fooled. And then he turns it around and he says, I'm the living water. If you drink of me, the waters I give, you'll never be thirsty again. He quenches that nagging thing is what am I missing? What's the piece of the puzzle, the rip in the wall? The missing Sheep of the flock, oh, it all comes together in Christ. And then those things have a way of working themselves out. It was Augustine, a church father, who said, Our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in thee. But we're busy with the wells of this world, drinking water that cannot satisfy and eating the bread that the world bakes and then coming up hungry afterwards. And he says, look, to me. How much bread this week have you eaten? How much of the living water have you had? No, think about it. A sip here, a little nibble of a crust here. That's why the rise of anxiety, the rise of feeling unsatisfied, the rise of not having the peace. Because we look for it in all the wrong places, not as the world gives. Let's talk about Solomon before we move on. So the wisest king that ever was or ever will be, the Bible says, he backslid, didn't he? And he talks about what the world has to give. 
And what he did in the end years is he journaled 12 chapters of, of an exploit to find pleasure, peace, and meaning, and satisfaction without God. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's my journal. Folks, I want to save you guys some time and effort and a lot of frustration because I did this disciplined, focused, wise pursuit of trying to find the peace the world gives. So I tried it with money and the scriptures say he was the richest man ever and ever will be. And a after every category, he goes through all the categories that you would think that we look for the world to give us peace. And he comes up short, and after every category, he says, meaningless, meaningless, futile, futile, vanity of vanities, like chasing after the wind. It's like, okay, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it now, I'm going to give nothing. That's what he says. So he, he talks about wine, women, and songs. And, and it says, I tried to cheer myself with wine. He wasn't like a, a fall down drunk, but he was trying to say, I went after dinner parties, extravagance and luxury living. I had beautiful parties with singers and choirs. We had a zoo. I built a zoo. It was a palace. We had beautiful um, fruit trees and lakes and accomplishments. But at the end, it was just meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. You wake up the next morning after a beautiful time like that and the nagging starts again. What's the purpose? What's the meaning? And then he says, it doesn't make sense. He says, the more I studied, then he, he pursued education. And he said, well, it wasn't through books or education because the more I learned, the sadder I got because I started learning things and seeing things. Like you work your whole life, you invest well, <laughs> you build up some savings, and then, you know, before you can have a chance to enjoy it, you die. And who gets that money? Somebody who didn't work for it, and somebody who probably won't spend it as wisely as you would spend it. But you're not in any control. Everything you've worked for, everything you've dreamed of, everything you stored up for yourself, gone poof and left to somebody probably who you didn't want to get it in the first place. That's what he says. And he says, so yeah, who can bring me some sense of peace? And he says, right at the end of 12 chapters of, is it here, is it there? He said, I had a thousand women at my beck and call. If I saw a beautiful face as king, I would just say, Let's get married. And so he'd marry any pretty face he ever saw. He had a thousand women in the palace. Do you know how many pairs of shoes that is? <laughs> That's a lot of shoes and a lot of problems. And he's the, yes, I'm sorry, but he's the one who said, you know, like a constant dripping. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> the Proverbs. <laughs> Better to live in the corner of a roof, right? Well, Solomon, I was, when I read that, I go, Solomon, it's your own fault, man. You're the one who married a thousand women. You know, come on. Of course, you've got problems like that. Well, listen, I digress. On Mother's Day, what I meant was... <laughs> what I meant to say <laughs> was he had a thousand reasons for blessing <laughs> and joys. So he says at the end of 12 chapters of this, 
tried it all, been there, done that. And you know what he says in Ecclesiastes? He said, I did it better than you will ever hope to do it. That's what he says. He says, I did it smarter. I did it with more money. I did it with more passion. Don't even try. He said, I did it for you. And that's why we have Ecclesiastes to underscore this truth. I don't give you the way the world gives you. You know, there's stuff that God wants us to enjoy in the world. He's given us in Timothy, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter six, he says, don't put your hope in the world's wealth, but rather in God who graciously gives us everything we need to enjoy this life. So there's lots to enjoy in this world just as long as you don't make it your God. Just as long as you're hoping that it won't fulfill and give you the peace that only Christ can give you. And then let's finish up here with the last sentence. He says, now I've gone and deposited into your account the very peace that resides in the heart of the Almighty. But if you don't cooperate with me, it's gonna be, you know, for all intents and purposes, null and void. Not because you can't have it, not because it's not there. It's because you won't use it. And so let's talk about that. Number three, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Now you know. How can you tell somebody don't be afraid? It's like he's in command form. It's a command. Do not be afraid. Well, you can't help, as we say, the bird flying overhead but you can stop it from building a nest. This is what he's talking about. That you can have some level of apprehension without the despair, without giving way, without obsessing on it and letting it rob the joy because you're thinking over and over and over again. He might as well say, I mean, I love that. He says, do not allow your hearts to be troubled. That means that you and I have the ability to stop the fear, to stop the upset, all right? You can't stop the thing that's causing it, but you can in your mind as a kind of a traffic cop in your own heart to say, you know, no. And you, put, you, 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 you bring in the promises of God, right? No, I'll need some, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And you know what they said and you know what they think and all of that. And so your job is do not let your hearts be troubled. That means you're standing there with God's grace and you're saying no. So number one, let's do three or four things that you can do to not let your heart be troubled. Number one, take charge. Take charge. All day long, we get these thoughts and feelings and emotions, and we just get pushed around and tossed about whichever the wind blows. And he says, do not permit, do not allow, do not entertain, disallow the impetus, the prompt to fear. You have that ability, or he wouldn't tell you, don't do something that you couldn't do, right? And so let me put it to you this way. When you have truth about something, that can dissolve fear like that. You can decide, I'm not going to be afraid of that based on what you know. For example, you're asleep in the middle of the night. Something loud, like walking footsteps down the hallway. So you get up, your wife says, you know, hey, I heard something. The husband gets up, 
<laughs> looks down the hallway and sees the cat chasing the toy mouse. All right, it's like no worries. Got the information. The fear goes phew, down because you've got the information, right? And so now you go back to sleep. You hear the bump, bump, bump again. You wake up, you're afraid. But what you tell yourself, oh, I don't have to let my heart be troubled because I know something. I know something. I know that it's just a cat with the toy mouse, right? So what the Bible is trying to get you to understand is that every single threat, everything that could trouble your heart is simply, ultimately, eternally, spiritually speaking, just the cat chasing the toy mouse down the hallway. You name it, Romans 8 will cover it. It's in the list. Nothing can separate you. And everything that's going on, God's weighing it out. He will not allow you to face anything that you can't bear. I'm quoting scripture right now. He says, but with the very trial or the temptation, God is faithful not to let you be tempted or tried more than you can bear, but with the trial itself will provide a way of escape. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. This is why we can say, because of what I know, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to stop playing the tape. I'm going to stop repeating it. I'm going to stop dwelling on it. And I'm going to stop trying to fix it. I mean, you have to do your part. But I'm going to stop being so preoccupied. If you if you spend half the time rehearsing in our minds and praying about the truthfulness of God and the scriptures compared to the amount of time we spend on what if this and all of this, and can you believe they, we would have more of the peace that passes understanding. So number one, take charge. He says, I want you to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So when the thought comes in, what if? You're going to say, you know what if? Oh, God's going to do something beautiful with this. God's going to carry me through. He's going to work it out. He's with us in the fire. All of that. You take every thought captive. And then the second thing is fight. As you can tell, the Bible says we must fight the good fight of faith. Faith in the, in the midst of something that's threatening you is a fight. It's a battle. When the disciples are on the storm-tossed lake with the Lord, what does he say at the end there? He says, what is your problem? They're like, don't you care that we're going to drown? They were scared out of their minds. And Jesus is asleep with the peace of God. And he wakes up and he says, listen, why did you doubt? What's your problem? I said, let's go to the other side. I didn't say, let's go out and drown. You know, have, have a little faith that each one of you, God has looked at you in the face and said, let's go to the other side. We, you are going to the other side and you're going to stand there unharmed and unfaced and bettered by every trial that you've ever seen. That's just the way it is, amen. But you're going to have to fight. And so here are some ways to fight. Number one, you pray. When you pray, what's happening? You, you're, you're, you're in the presence of God. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's peace. And not only that, it's like a weapon, man. 
It's a weapon. The prayers of somebody right with God are powerful and effective. So instead of being anxious with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. That passes understanding will keep your hearts and minds. The second thing here to a weapon here is the word of God. You know, instead of doing the thing in our head to quote a scripture, God has not given me the spirit of fear, but a power and a love and a sound mind. How about that? I cannot tell you how many times that I've had anxiety and I will quote the scripture over and over again. And that scripture as I've said many times, is not not like Huckleberry Finn. It's alive. The Bible says of itself, it's living and active like a sword. So when you're being tormented about something or troubled and and God said, don't let it happen, take out the sword and start wielding it. You know, the one who fears, the Bible says, perfect love casts out all fear. The one who fears is not perfected in love because fear involves punishment and there's no punishment left for us. You see, 1 John chapter four, uh, quote these things. You know, in the world, you're gonna have trouble. These things I've uh, written unto you that in me, I might, that in me, you might have peace. In this world, you're gonna have trouble, but be a good cheer, I've overcome the world. Use the word of God more often. And then that focus on God, man, Here's the scripture in Isaiah 26, three. You will keep in perfect peace those who stay their minds on thee. That's what has to happen. Oh, we can stay our mind on the problem. He says, that's not where you're gonna find the peace. Think about it, do your due diligence, do your work, and then come back to Father God. Stay your mind on him, right? And then fight. Come on. I heard a sermon once, a guy who called young Christians. He said, come on, you bunch of pacifists. What are you, a spiritual patsy? And I had to look up the word patsy because I didn't know what it was. But here's what a patsy is, a person who is easily taken advantage of or easily uh, to be cheated. And so what he was saying is Christians are like punching bags. They don't fight back. They let the thoughts come in, the fears come in, and kick them in the shins and poke them in the eyes and rattle them, you know, and they don't do a thing. Don't do a thing. And he says, you guys are pacifists. And then he quoted a scene from Back to the Future. And he said, we need to be more like George McFly. (laughs) And I was like, I want to see where this is going. So George McFly is out with uh, his date, his girlfriend, right? And Biff, the big brute, comes by and he just knocks him aside, pushes him down and starts making advances toward George McFly's girl, right? And so he gets up and, he, and Biff takes his arm and he starts twisting it and, and, and the girlfriend's saying, you're gonna break his arm. And he's just cowered over. He's just a skinny little guy, you know? And you can see and the music changes and there's a slow motion and you, you see his fist, his hand, and his hand just kind of goes into a fist. And it's almost like George is like, what's happening to me? I've never seen a fist of mine, you know? But he's been battered and bullied his whole entire life. And this was his moment. Oh, Biff chose the wrong hour to mess with him. And so up comes this strength and he's watching it, almost amazed. And the fist goes 
flying, you know, and destined for the jaw of Biff, and Biff goes down. It was so wonderful. <laughs> Biff goes over like a big Goliath, you know, and so he goes down, and so listen, how long are you going to let Biff twist your arm and make you cry and panic and tell the story over and over in your head and forfeit the grace and the peace that is already yours, free for the asking, but you won't have it because you are still letting your hearts be troubled. Last one, and then we're done. You must fight and you must use faith and you must pray and do these things, but you must also raise your Ebenezer. Now, we sing about this in a hymn written by Robert Robinson in the 1700s. Let me explain what I mean. Come Thou Fount has been around for, what, 400 years or so. And the second verse, the first line that we all sing and no one knows what they're saying it, it says, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. Nobody knows what that, unless you've heard it explained, right? But because everybody else is singing it, we sing it too. You know, here I raise my Ebenezer, yeah, whatever. In 1 Samuel 7, and here's how the hymn writer was inspired to use that line. The Philistines in 1 Samuel 7 were attacking the Israelites as usual. They had just really been a thorn in their side. So God said, I'm going to intervene. God sent down the thunder, confused the Philistine army, and they went fleeing. And Israel had a great victory that day. So Samuel says, okay, let's, let's pull up this stone. Let's raise this stone up here. They raise up this stone. And he says, I'm going to call that stone in Hebrew, Ebenezer. And Ebenezer means the Lord has helped us. And here's what he did. He said, every time we pass by there, we can allay all of our future fears by looking at the memorial stones and say, well, hitherto, up till now, God has been helping us. God's been faithful and God's past faithfulness is his future bond. His guarantee is, is that take a look at all the other jams I've got you out of, how I've used everything else, how it's all working for good, how I've got control and how many, they did it again with crossing the Jordan. When they crossed the Jordan, the priest said, okay, build up some stones. And anytime, because God parted the Jordan River for them, anytime you see the stones, you can go, phew, man, I have no worries to come because this God has been faithful uh, in my wake of my entire life. I can point back. And you know what the cool thing about getting old? There's not a lot, but there's some. <laughs> you have more Ebenezer stones. I've got, I've got 40 years of Ebenezer stones all lined up so that when something comes my way, I've got something of that template to say, well, in the same way that God, and let me, let me close out with my favorite, one of my favorite ones. Back against the wall was a young man. We were just uh, married a few years. Jordan was a baby and Barb was pregnant with Zach. And I thought I had it made there in San Jose. Had a large church, a couple thousand people, 13 pastors on staff. I was like, this is a lifetime gig. 
you know, but the lead pastor left, the new pastor came in, had a youth pastor already and asked a few people to resign, including me. I was like, whoa, wait a second here. My wife's pregnant and where are we going to get insurance and what am I going to do? And my dad's sick right now and he lives close by and oh, so I went to see him, the pastor, and he wasn't taking any calls. He would just told the secretary, just tell him, you know, God bless you and see ya, right? That happens, you know? I have tried to pastor the opposite of many pastoral experiences I have had in my past. Anyway, to get to the point, uh, what are we gonna do? I gotta, we gotta find something to do. So I have been taking graduate courses at Menlo Park Press uh, for, from Fuller Seminary, extension courses. I knew someday I'd have to go to Pasadena for a year. That was the policy. And so I thought, well, maybe this is a good time, but you know, no money, no job. How am I gonna do anything, get a place to live down there? So I called down there and I called Fuller Housing and they said, oh man, yeah. It, the, the wait is a year long. When you do get in, it's just as expensive as out there, really a couple hundred dollars you save. But you know what? Because, and I'm telling her my whole story, of course. <laughs> and she says, you know, because I don't know why, but there's a lot of people I could give this number to, but I'm going to give it to you. Somebody just called the seminary and said, hey, I've got this granny unit behind my house. I would love to bless one of your seminary students. And so I'm going to give you the phone number. So I'm like, whoa, I got the phone number. I go home. I, call, I tell Barb, hey, let's call this guy. His name's Howard. So I call Howard. And I was like, hey, Howard, I'm calling from, I'm going to be a student down there. And we're looking for a place. Oh, right. That's wonderful. Well, we're fixing it up for you. Uh, okay, and he says, what color do you want the carpets? I'm like, Howard, do you want to know my name or anything? He goes, yeah, you're from the seminary. You're going to be a pastor? Yes, I'm going to be a pastor. Oh, yeah, well, no worries about that. So when can you come down? I'm like, so we've got the place. And he goes, yeah. And he said, oh, it's a cute little place. It's a, it, and it was. And he said, I said, how much is it going to cost? And he says, oh, I don't need the money. Oh, I don't need the money? Well, what does that mean? He goes, well, if you got a few hundred bucks every once in a while, just, you know, that's all. He says, but I don't need the money. I just want to be a blessing. Cha-ching. <laughs> what? And so now the pastor says, oh, you know, you go, go find a job somewhere. God bless you, you know. And I'm like, oh, no, my back's against the wall. I got a baby. My wife is pregnant. What are we going to do? I don't have a job down there. Well, he had that figured out too. But Howard is the name of one of my beautiful Ebenezer stones that I raise up when I feel like, oh, oh no, oh, no, where, what, what's going to happen? I remember, wow, the same God that came through with Howard. Now, and I hope the Holy Spirit's flooding your mind with all the Howard stories that you have and all the ways God has been so faithful to you. You bring out those Ebenezer stones and you tell your fear, no. I've got a father in heaven and he has a good plan. No need to fear, but have perfect peace. Let's pray together. God.
We thank you for the timing of this message. Many hearts here with all kinds of apprehensions, but we have a God who just knows what we need when we need to hear it. Now apply it to our hearts, God, and help us this day to walk in your peace and not to forfeit it, but to love it and to use it and let it minister to us in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 